Hello, this is Leslie Grotha-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. In this episode, I speak with Dean Jill Gross about professional responsibility. episode, Dean Jill Gross, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law at Pace Law School, explains one of the most tested subjects of professional responsibility, which is how to identify attorney-client conflicts of interest. Dean Gross highlights what she identifies as three different types of conflicts of interest and then offers a great analytical tool for identifying when potential conflicts exist and evaluating the severity of the conflict. Before we get started, I want to remind you that it would be wonderful if you could like us, rate us on any of the platforms on which you listen to this. And as always, if you have any questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at Law to Fact or reach us on our website, www.lawtofact.com. All right, here's my discussion with Dean Gross. Okay, great. All right, so let's, can we talk about conflict of interest as it relates to professional responsibility? Absolutely. So... Uh, the foundational rule, ethical rules for all lawyers, uh, we start with the ABA model rules of professional conduct. Uh, every state has adopted those model rules, either uh, verbatim or many states have their own state variations. But students first have to understand the model rules, and then when they get admitted to practice in a particular state, they will then focus on the state variations. Uh, And conflicts of interest is one of the most serious ethical uh, violations that a lawyer can engage in. Um, But learning the rules is is complicated because they're not intuitive. They don't necessarily follow what one might think logically would constitute a conflict of interest that a lawyer has to worry about. Yeah, well, that makes sense because, I mean, to me, it just seems so obvious. You know, if your interests conflict, you know. Anyway. Right. Well, so the the model rules divide conflicts into three different types of, of in terms of seriousness. So some uh, conflicts that appear to be conflicts are really don't even rise to the level of a conflict of interest for ethical purposes and therefore don't even require any action for a lawyer to take and they're perfectly okay to continue on. Uh, There's a whole category of conflicts that are serious enough that a lawyer has to do something or take some action, but ultimately they are waivable so that the lawyer can continue uh, with both uh, representations or both clients. And then the third category are those, which is a narrow category, are those conflicts that are so serious that they can't even be waived, that under no circumstances could a lawyer represent two clients in this partic- in that particular category. Uh, so that's really how it's broken down. Um, and then the rules then also divide it up by time. So if you are representing uh, two current clients who are both your ongoing, everyday client at the same time, that's a more serious situation and requires uh, an analysis of a a concurrent conflict of interest. So I'm in, just to interrupt you for a second. Yes. Time is, so we have categories one, two, and three. The seriousness, and we, right? yes. And then we we look at, these are just conflicts of interest of taking clients on for representation. Right. And then we're now looking at a different group, right? How does time well, factor so, into the one, two, and three, I guess, is So within those one, two, and three categories, they each uh, are less serious as 
more time elapses between the two representations. So if they're both ongoing at the same time, they're more likely to be serious in either one of the two more serious categories. If they're a conflict between a client you used to represent and a client you represent now, it's, it's even less serious and requires a different kind of analysis. Um, some of the issues arise in determining just who is a former client before you can even get to the oh, issue yeah, of whether something is a conflict of interest. And the easy cases are easy. If you've sent a termination letter or the client fired you, it's really easy to right. say they're a former client, but there are some bright, you know, some cases that fall sort of in the gray area, and often the rules look at it through the eyes of the client. What is the client's expectations? If you've sent a newsletter to your client over the past few years, even though you haven't done any work for them, mm-hmm. because you want them to think of you and you want to keep their business, mm-hmm. they might think of you as their lawyer. Got it. All right, so I just want to take a few steps back for a second. So the first thing I want to ask you is, can you give me an example of a type 1 situation, type 2 situation, type 3 situation? So in other words, what would be a situation where there's a conflict, but the lawyer doesn't have to do anything? Okay, so all of the examples I'm giving, we're going to focus on the representational setting, where we're talking about a lawyer's representation of one client and another client. So a classic example might be that you represent a bank uh, in handling their um, mortgage closings when they give out mortgages for property, and then uh, in your practice, somebody comes to see you and wants to sue the bank because they slipped. They slipped. There was a slip and fall in the ATM lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, can you represent uh, a depositor who fell and hurt him or herself in the lobby uh, and sue the bank when you represent the bank in a different capacity, only on mortgage foreclosures? Okay. And typically, that would be a non. Um, it would be a, in the middle category. That's why it's sort of the classic example. It does raise. Uh, a problem. It is considered a concurrent conflict of interest, but if you can get informed consent confirmed in writing from the bank, Mm -hmm. you might be able to do both. In addition to getting informed consent in that situation, you would have to have an objective determination that a competent and diligent lawyer, that a lawyer could provide competent and diligent representation to each affected client. So that's sort of the middle So that's example. like the type 2 situation. That's the type so 2 situation. So what's the type 1 situation? Where there, it doesn't even rise to the yeah. level of yeah. a conflict of interest. Yeah. So let me think of an example where you uh, represent um, the, the bank in the mortgage foreclosure situation um, and somebody comes to see you who uh, maybe slipped had a slip and fall near the bank but didn't want to sue the bank and perhaps somebody at the bank might end up being a witness. Okay. That would be a a type one one where you won't even really have to worry about uh, determining whether there's a conflict of interest. All right. And I was thinking of one. I don't know if this is good. Let's say you represent a bank and you represent the ATM manufacturer that the bank leases and the ATM manufacturer creates some kind of, I don't know, property damage or something, and your client comes to, someone comes to you and says, I want to sue the ATM manufacturer 
of the ATM, which is within the bank, but not suing the bank. That would probably be uh, a situation that would be the type two because you're not representing the bank in that particular matter. You're representing the the person, the, the ATM manufacturer. Right. But there are some interests of the bank that are implicated, and so you would have to take those into account. Okay. But the type three example, yeah. the ones that are not waivable, right. are say uh, you a depositor. Uh, you represent the depositor suing the bank, mm-hmm. and you also represent the bank in that personal injury action. Right. You would be representing both sides of the caption. Right. That is, you cannot do. That is right. prohibited by law. You cannot, prohibited by the ethical right. rules, I should say. That's a conflict that's so egregious right. that no amount of waiver or remedy will cure that conflict. And is that why in a divorce action, if a husband sees a lawyer, the just just as a, to, to consider representation, the wife can't see the lawyer to consider the representation? Right. Virtually. Actually, some states allow a lawyer to represent both the husband and the wife or, or either both spouses in a divorce action as long as it's an uncontested divorce. Okay. But if it's contested, then the interests are not aligned. And no, you, a lawyer cannot represent both the husband and a wife. Uh, or each spouse, I should say, in any particular divorce action. Got it. And just to state the obvious before we move forward, what's the purpose? What's the theory behind conflict of interest? Okay, so the the rules are really um, organized around the basic principle that a lawyer owes a duty of loyalty to each client. And if being loyal to one client necessarily will involve being more disloyal to another client, mm-hmm. then that is an, a conflict that we have to consider whether it's permitted. Because a lawyer is in a fiduciary relationship with their client, and that requires a duty of loyalty. Um, the reason why it, it applies to not only current clients, where, who you definitely have a duty of loyalty to, but also a former client, is because you always owe a duty of confidentiality to even clients you no longer represent. So you have ongoing duties to your former clients, and you would have to consider whether those duties, even they're limited in scope, you would have to consider whether those duties are ones that, you, that would uh, conflict with your current duty of loyalty to your existing client. So it's all really about a loyalty. We want to make sure that the lawyer retains the independence of judgment without being influenced by conflicting loyalties. Right, right. Yeah, so your loyalty is not challenged, um, you know, it's pure to the person to whom you're, rep- you exactly. know, you're, you're representing. Exactly. All right. So it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that if I were taking a professional responsibility test, that the first thing I would have to do is I'd see my fact pattern and I have to figure out if this is a type one, type two, or type three situation. Is that correct? Exactly. That's really the number one uh, issue that you want to determine. Mm-hmm. Um, to get there, you have to uh, look at some of the other factors that I've just mentioned. So right, to so get there, yes, yes. to get to whether it's a type one, two, or three, whether it's not a conflict at all, a conflict but waivable, or uh, not even uh, waivable or consentable, um, you have to cons- first again think about what are the existing duties to the various parties. Who are the parties? Who are the clients that have been represented by you or by other people in your law office? Uh, and once you identify the parties, the best idea, I, I always teach to lay it out in a chart, who represents who, 
the party, the lawyer for that party, and the matter that the party is uh, being represented on, and determine whether it's a current representation or a former right, representation. I'm down for just a second. Yes. So, <laughs> this is so helpful. All right, so we're going to take our fact pattern, and we're going to figure out who the parties are. Right. Once we figure out who the parties are, we're going to figure out who the attorneys are for the parties, or attorney for both parties. Correct. And once we do that... Then we've got to look at factors. And the first factor... Well, there's actually in your chart, you're going to have three uh, col- three columns. Okay. One is who the client is. Mm-hmm. Second column, who the lawyer is. Right. And third column, on what matter is that lawyer representing that client. Okay, got it. And the minute you have the same check and... That's right. Then you spot you can spot issues very quickly. Okay. And when I say lawyer in mo- many of these conflicts, mm-hmm. um, I mean we won't have time to go into the intricacies of all the rules. But another uh, factor to consider is if you're a lawyer in a firm uh, working with other lawyers for any concurrent or most even former client conflicts. Um, any lawyer in the firm's conflict is imputed to all other lawyers in that office. So if you and I were partners in a law firm, mm-hmm. anytime you would be disqualified based on a conflict from a particular representation, I would be as well, and vice versa. Okay. Um, so you have to consider not only clients I formerly represented, but clients you formerly as represented your as, as my wow. partner. And if I have 100 partners, every single one of those... Uh, representations have to be taken into an account. Taken into account. So it seems to me, if you know, it's hard to visualize if, for visual learners. But if I'm looking at my chart, my fictitious chart, which yes. I'm not looking at either, in my head, if I have two, I have two X's in the same box of lawyer, or two X's in the same box of cl- of matter. Then I gotta now figure out: Is this a type one situation, type two situation, type three situation? Right. And okay. and the way to go about that is first for the client column, mm-hmm. label them current or former. Okay. Okay. Perfect. All right. And if you have a current versus a former, mm-hmm. then you would look at Rule One Nine on successive conflicts. Okay. If it's a current versus a current, you would look at Rule One Seven. Okay. For concurrent conflicts. One other factor to consider, and you might add a column to this depending on uh, the fact pattern, is what kind of law office is it? If it's a government lawyer, or a lawyer working in a government, or one of the representations was in a government law office, Mm -hmm. then you would have to consult Rule 1.11, Rule 111, which uh, addresses conflicts for government lawyers. Okay. Those rules are even less restrictive because we want to encourage and incentivize lawyers to work in public service and okay. work for the government. So we make it easier for them to switch employment from private sector to public sector by lessening the seriousness of conflicts arising out of that work. Okay. And so all of this requires you to identify, as I said, the parties, the lawyers, the timing, the nature of the matter, and the, the nature of the practice before you can even determine which of the many rules on conflicts you need to consult. And that makes sense. And then once you decide which rule to consult, you can walk through the rule, and it will then tell you, using certain terms of art for certain kinds of factors to analyze whether it's a type one type two or type three if it's a type one you're done 
if it's a type 2, you might be able to cure it with consent. Mm-hmm. If it's a type 3, stop and withdraw from representing either both clients, if they're current, or the current client, or possibly uh, both clients. It depends on how serious the conflict is. And, can, and we're going to get back to analyzing, but just my own personal question. Can I fire an old client if I'd rather keep the new client? Uh, the rules uh, strongly discourage lawyers trying to cure conflicts by firing a client, particularly if it's a less lucrative yeah, client. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, there is some authority that that is an ethical violation. Mm-hmm. Um, just as it's an ethical, just as a lawyer on the reverse side, if clients call around to various lawyers in a in a community tell them confidential information for the purpose of disqualifying them in a future case, Right, that is not held against the lawyer because that would be cheating by the, uh, or something unfair by a lawyer, uh, by a client to try to get all the lawyers in town disqualified, all the good lawyers. Yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's take a hypothetical. Let's take the hypothetical where you represent a bank and then a new client comes to you and says, I slip and fell in that bank. How would you, as a student, go about analyzing that? So if the question is, can I take on this new client? Right. Then I say to myself, self, these are, would be, if I took on this client, this is a prospective client or uh, would be a current client. The bank is already a current client. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both private sector situation. So this is clearly a 1-7 concurrent conflict possibility. Okay, and you say one seven because that's the rule that may trigger? That is the rule that everyone knows triggers for okay. concurrent conflicts of interest. The basic sort of okay. first place you start when analyzing conflicts of interest, whether it's a concurrent conflict. Okay. The rule then, again, I don't think we have time to go into all of the intricacies of it, um, but essentially the rule requires you to look at two different issues. The first issue is, is it by definition a concurrent conflict of interest. There are two ways it could be. Mm-hmm. And if it is, mm-hmm. do any of the exceptions apply that allow you to get consent from the client to go forward? Okay, so let's talk that through. What is it by definition? So what... It is because you would be, if you represented the plaintiff in this slip and fall against the bank, you would be in a situation that we call direct adversity, where you are suing your current client. Okay. If you are representing somebody who is suing your current client, then you are in an automatic uh, situation by definition that is a concurrent conflict. Okay. The only way you can continue representing both parties in that situation, the bank in a separate, in the yeah. mortgage foreclosure yeah. situation, yeah. Yeah. is if um, a, a a disinterested lawyer thinks that you can give competent and diligent representation, right? if it's not prohibited by law, which it is not, mm-hmm. if it is not representing both sides of the caption in that particular matter, which it isn't, okay. and then if you get informed consent confirmed in writing from each affected client. So do you need all four? You need all four. And when you say a, disis- a disinterested attorney, is that just an objective standard, or do you have to hire some attorney to It's an objective it? standard. Okay, so it's just a standard. Okay, cool. Great. Yes. Okay, good. Okay. And then if you determine that this was uh, a bank you used to represent, say, and you, this uh, person who fell comes to see you and says, Can I, I want you to represent me in suing the bank, 
the next step would be that would be a Rule 1-9 conflict because you identified that the bank is a former client. Okay. Uh, and then you have to consider what kinds of confidential information you might have learned in the context of representing the bank in mortgage foreclosure actions. If, you've, if any kind of lawyer, and it's actually an, another objective test, not what you actually learned, mm-hmm. but what ordinarily a lawyer in that situation would have learned. Uh, and so you think, oh, I might have learned about the bank's uh, assets and liabilities. Mm-hmm. Well, now, oh. right. No. So now that's yeah, yeah, confidential yeah. information, yes. which I could then, in my representation of the plaintiff, mm-hmm. use against the bank. That would be a conflict, of, uh, a successive conflict. Mm-hmm. You can still always go ahead with a successive conflict if you get informed consent confirmed in writing from the bank in this situation because they theirs, their confidences are the ones that would be jeopardized. So this is really helpful. It seems that informed consent can kind of give the lawyer, the practicing attorney, permission, right, to go out. So my question is... To go forward to with go the forward. representation. Right, right, to go forward with the representation. If you have a type 3 situation... Correct. Can the lawyer get informed consent to get around a type 3 situation, or do the rules prohibit it in any circumstances? They prohibit it in, in those. If it, if it rises to the level of a type 3... Mm-hmm. That by, that by definition means that it cannot be cured or remedied by a consent from any client. So you are barred by the ethical rules from going ahead with the representation. It's not consentable. You can, your client, you can talk to your client until you're blue in the face to beg them to allow it. It doesn't matter. They can't allow it. And so that's kind of the difference between the three and the two. Correct. Right? Okay. Interesting. Well, very helpful. What else do you think... Um, is- you would want to tell students about this issue. Okay, so, uh, you know, in this short time, we've covered some of the basics. Mm-hmm. What I would want students to remember is that the conflict rules for representational conflicts have many more nuances to them. The comments to the rules are very helpful in um, elaborating on particular definitions or tests for some of the terms of art that are used in each of these rules. Students should never forget to also consult the comments along with the rule whenever they're doing a detailed analysis. Um, Students should also remember to consider whether a particular conflict is imputed to other people in the firm, Mm -hmm. other lawyers in the firm. As I mentioned earlier, if it's a concurrent conflict, it's always imputed. If it's uh, the basic kind of successive conflict, it's imputed. But other kinds of successive conflicts which get even more convoluted, having to do with lawyers moving firms. Mm -hmm. So a client I used to represent in a firm I'm no longer associated with, Mm -hmm. those are even less serious and they're much less likely to either not be imputed or if they are imputed, they can be remedied by a screen, which is a whole nother ball of wax so what, in terms what, of what, what, what's a screen what do you mean by a screen a screen is where you um uh it's sort of a it's a, again it's a term of art and it's defined in the rules uh for uh, uh, making sure that the lawyer who has the disqualifying information confidential information cannot access the files on the new client cannot have any interaction with any lawyers who are working on that matter cannot have access to the computer network cannot get into the file room, cannot get to the thumb drive, cannot get to the internet, uh, any net, you know, any storage for the firm on that matter. And that, that way they're separated 
either virtually and physically from any access. Um, and then you typically have to give notice to the client, the former client, that there is this conflict, but you're remedying it with the screen. Right. Again, each situation is slightly different, and uh, depending on who moved, was it the lawyer who moved firms, or was it the client mm-hmm. who moved firms? That is a different situation. Uh, and so each of those factors is something that has to be considered. And then, as I said, just one additional rule, the 111 having to do with government lawyers in their whether they used to be a government lawyer and now in private practice or vice versa, have their own set of rules. And when you say a government lawyer, does that include district attorneys and also people who represent the town council, like anything related to government, right? Yes, and any kind of government, whether it's at the state level, the federal level, any kind of agency, executive branch, judicial branch, any kind of uh, working in the government where you're representing the government. Okay. So you're representing either the state or the federal government in some capacity. Then you are a lawyer for the government. Got it. Is this, is this um, issue tested on the MPRE? Yes. The, the rules of conflicts are probably make up um, at least, I don't know, have exact statistics, but at least a third of the entire MPRA. Wow. It is the most heavily tested oh my area. God. Awesome. Uh, and it takes about a month to go through it in class. Okay. Uh, it's about a month of the semester. Wow. Okay. So that's like a fourth of the semester almost, that's right. right? Yeah. That's right. All right. Interesting. Wonderful. Anything else? This is really helpful. I love learning things I didn't really know. Um, I guess I did know it because I took the MPRE, but it was quite some time ago. (laughs) I did know it. Uh, Anything else you want to add? Just remember, again, uh, to always um, look at the rules rather than um, think what is intuitively the answer. It's often not the answer in the conflict area. Or anywhere else. A student should always look at the rules. (laughs) That's a good point. Right? (laughs) Um, All right, great. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. So that's my discussion with Dean Jill Gross. Hope you enjoyed it. Once again, we'd love it if you rate us, star us, give us feedback on any of the platforms on which you listen to us. Thanks, as always, to www.bensoundforthemusic. Enjoy your day.